0: The text this morning, we are coming near the end of 2 Corinthians this Sunday and next Sunday, and our messages in the book of 2 Corinthians will come to an end. We're at the end now of chapter 12. And I want you, uh, as always, invite you to follow along with me in the scriptures as I read. Uh, I always encourage you uh, perhaps to take notes. Um, Sometimes I know when I'm in services, I don't, I don't like to mark right there in my Bible because it's kind of shaky on my lap and I'm trying to underline it and it goes up about three lines on the page and I don't underline what I intended. Uh, and so sometimes I'll take notes or make some marks elsewhere and then later when I have like a straight edge or something like that, mark some things in, uh, in my Bible. So I encourage you uh, to, to do that, to, to take some notes. It, it's a good way uh, during the week to uh, think through Uh, meditate on, pray over uh, the message that was brought on Sunday. Uh, My prayer always is that the message is not just for the day, and that it quickly dissipates as uh, each of us goes out the door, but that the message will actually produce life change, uh, that the message will bring strength and encouragement, yes, challenge, whatever the need may be uh, through the Holy Scriptures. And so this is uh, the text this morning, 2 Corinthians 12, reading from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Paul says, I have been a fool, you forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you." For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. And that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced." Here's the end of the reading. In this passage this morning, as we look at what Paul writes about his own experience, I want to lift it beyond that, and I want you to notice with me several characteristics of what true Christian ministry looks like. We're not apostles, but God's given us a calling, opportunity, places to serve, And so what can we glean from this text, from Paul's calling as an apostle, what can we glean for ourselves when it comes to truly serving the Lord? Because if you're a believer, I hope you understand this, if if you know Christ as your Savior, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit, each one of us uniquely gifted. Each one of us is given opportunities of one kind or another. And so the call of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives, if we truly know Christ, is that we find ways, and hopefully what this should be is from the inside out of thankfulness and joy and a want to on the inside to find ways to serve in accordance with the gifts and open doors that he sets before us. And so when you think about this text, I, I try to, to, to think about how to, how to ask this in one question, what this text is about, and, and I'm putting it this way, am I helping or hindering the cause of Christ? So I want you to think about that overriding question as we work our way through this text. Now, as, as Paul, here in this passage, these are the final words in his letter regarding the authenticity of his apostleship, which had been questioned, which had been challenged by some of those who had come to Corinth after he had left. And here in this passage, just very quickly in summary, you notice Paul turns our attention to what are the signs of a true apostle? He lays those out. He lays out the sacrifices he's made in ministry, the love that he has in his heart for the Corinthians, uh, the integrity of his life and ministry. He lays that out again in this passage. And he, at the very end of this passage, he expresses some of the fears that he has in his heart for the Corinthians that all might not be well in each of their lives. Now, as we come to this text, as it opens, we come to the end of Paul's so-called fool's speech. It's a speech which began way back in the beginning of chapter 11, run all the way through chapter 11. Now it ends here in the middle of chapter 12. And you notice as Paul wraps up his fool's speech, as scholars like to call it, he wraps it up with a rebuke. You notice verse 11. He says, I have been a fool, you forced me into it, Paul says. In other words, I didn't want to write the way I have for the last chapter and a half those that had come to corinth were boastful and arrogant they weren't playing a part they actually were boastful they were arrogant and how does paul address that because they had swept away many of the corinthians to false understanding of the gospel to false teaching and so paul plays the part he says at the beginning of chapter 11 now put up with me now i'm going to take the role of an actor and i'm going to play the part of a fool to try to make a point to all of you. And he comes to the end and he says, okay, I've played the part of a fool. I didn't want to do it, but you forced me into it, to this empty exercise. And Paul says, you forced me into it. Why? You notice the answer is given in verse 14 with the word for or because. I say this, Paul says, because when the false apostles came to Corinth, the super apostles, he calls them sarcastically, Paul says, notice verse 11, I ought to have been commended by you, but that didn't happen. So these false teachers come to Corinth, and they make all sorts of false assertions and accusations, seek to undermine my apostolic authority, they attack my gospel, my apostleship, My credentials, my authority, my person, my character, everything they could attack. And in the face of all that, here's what verse 11 says, you should have come to my defense. After all, you all know me. I mean, I founded your church. I preached the gospel to you. I led many of you to Christ as your savior. I established the congregation. I appointed elders. You know me well. I'm friends with many of you. And you should have commended my ministry. But guess what? You didn't. You kept silent. How sad that is. And Paul says now, verse 11, as I've told you throughout this letter, in and of myself, I'm nothing. I hope you Corinthians understand that. Paul says, uh, I am nothing, the end of verse 11. But he says, at the same time, I'm in no way inferior to these intruders, these false teachers these super apostles who have come to your congregation and done so much damage. In fact, you Corinthians, Paul says in this passage, is you know the integrity of my life. You know the integrity of my ministry. You know my love for you. You know how your lives have been changed. You received the gospel. You were born again. You became a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're not the old that you once were, but you've been transformed by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet knowing all that, experiencing all of that, you didn't come to my defense. And so by your silence, you forced me into this boasting business, something that only fools do. Something that is totally unprofitable, but something Paul had said earlier, I trust will be effective in shaking you up, in opening your eyes to see the direction you're headed, to bring you back to the true gospel of salvation by grace through faith, to bring you back to a better understanding of the Christian life. And so Paul, as he writes this chapter, he says, you notice in verse 14, I hope you know I'm making a third trip now to Corinth, verse 14. It's going to be in the near future. And Paul says to them, I trust that when I arrive, all things will be in order. I trust that when I arrive, you will indeed recognize my apostolic authority. I trust that when I arrive, the relationship which has been so damaged between me and all of you, that that relationship can be restored and can even be strengthened. So with all that in mind, let's look at Paul's words specifically regarding his apostleship in this passage, and then to think about it, what it means for you and me to be a servant of Jesus Christ. So let's start where Paul does in verse 12 with the marks of a servant. Paul speaks about the signs of a true apostle, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, Paul says, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. In the book of Romans chapter 15, Paul says very much the same sort of thing in verse 18 and the first part of verse 19. Paul says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So to begin with, you notice both passages, both 2 Corinthians and Romans 15, one of the great markers of an apostle was, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, the performing of signs, wonders, and mighty works. Now, I hope you understand as you look at this listing in verse 12 that Paul isn't talking about three different things. He's simply talking about miracles. You can call miracles uh, any number of things. When you think about miracles as signs, it reminds us that the miracles are not just something self-contained, but they point to something beyond. What is it a sign of? What does it point to? Miracles as wonders point to the fact that when a miracle is done, those who experience it are in awe. They're stunned by it almost, if you will. Those who observe it are in awe at what uh, has transpired. And then miracles as mighty works remind us that it is only by the power of God that these things happen. Or as Paul says in Romans, by the power of the Spirit of God. Signs, wonders, and the power of the Spirit of God. Same thing in Romans chapter 15. And so the signs, the marks for Paul was the fact that he wrought mighty works, mighty miracles. And Paul says to the Corinthians, all right, when I was there, as many of you can recall, and he doesn't list what those miracles were, could have been healings, could have been any number of things. When I was in Corinth, God wrought miracles through me, Paul says. That's the sign of an apostle. But you notice Paul goes beyond that. There's more than that. There, there's more than just miracles. Remember, Jesus in Mark 5 talks about there can be lying wonders, lying miracles. Second uh, Thessalonians, Paul talks about the same sort of a thing. First uh, Corinthians 12, even the ordinary believer in the apostolic church could have the gift of miracles. So just because somebody did a miracle didn't make them a, an apostle in and of itself. But you notice what Paul says in uh, Romans 15. He mentions words and actions, doesn't he? the word that he brought was in accordance with the revelation from heaven the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what had Paul been called to do tells us in Romans 15, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. That's a word for bringing them to faith and then walking in the things of Christ. All right, so I accomplished that by the power of God, by the Spirit of God. There were the words that I proclaimed, the kind of life that I lived, and then the signs and wonders and miracles and so on that accompanied all of that. Those mark one as being a true apostle. All right, so you think about our lives. Okay, what are the marks of a true servant? Some of these same things should mark our lives. Should not our words and actions, as Paul speaks about them here, word and deed, should they not be in accordance with the truth of God's word? Should not our lives reflect accurately and truthfully what God says in the Holy Scriptures? That as we have received the gospel and we have been converted, we have been born again, our life has been transformed. It should show up in our whole outlook on life. And there should be an integrity, there should be a consistency marked by one who serves the Lord. Something else, notice in our text in verse 12, Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Talk about a need for ministry, utmost patience. That's one of the marks of one who serves the Lord. There are things you have to put up with sometimes in ministry. So you think about patience in ministry, patience when it's not easy to work with fellow volunteers. It's not always easy, is it? Not every personality meshes neatly with the next one, all right? But you serve with utmost patience. That's the mark of a servant of Jesus Christ. You don't let those things turn you aside from what you're called to do. Patience when it's difficult to work with those whom you're called to serve. And I think of some of you that help with Awana on a Wednesday night. You've got a rowdy small group. What do you need? Well, Paul says utmost Patience. As you work with them. Alright, so, so there are the marks of what it means to serve the Lord. And, by the way, should not the power of the Spirit of God be evident in our lives? Whatever we're called to do. All right, so what marks a servant of Jesus Christ? One who by word and action is in line with the Scripture, one who serves with utmost patience, one who has the power of the Spirit of God evidently working in his heart and life. So whatever you're called to do, you can't do it in your own strength and be a success. You need the power and filling of the Spirit of God. And when that is presence, Christ's power, His His Holy Spirit operative in your life, great things happen because, not because you're something. What does Paul say? I'm nothing. So anything good that happens is not because of me, because as I've told you before, Paul says, I am nothing, period. But when God's power is there, when God's calling is there, When your life has been transformed, when you take God's word seriously, when you step forward and in that spirit of patience working with others, those are some of the things that mark a true servant of Jesus Christ, the marks of a servant. So again, the question is, are there those authenticating marks in your life that you are a true servant of Jesus Christ? Well, notice the second thing. This is kind of the middle section of our text, the orientation of a servant. What should be our orientation in ministry? Well, what was Paul's orientation? The orientation of an apostle or of anyone who serves the Lord Jesus Christ, that person's life needs to be marked by a sacrificial love for others. That's what verses 13 through 18 are all about. A sacrificial love For the good of others. That's a servant of Christ. And you notice here, Paul uses the parent-child analogy in verse 14, doesn't he? he? What does he say? Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul was their father in the faith. He was obligated. He had the joy of providing for them in every way that he could. Notice these verses in 1 Corinthians 4. Verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have 10,000 guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul says, I in essence gave birth to you as a believing congregation because I brought the gospel to you, which is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe, and you received that gospel, you were born again, your life was transformed, so through the gospel that I brought, I am your father in the faith, Paul says. And what does he say back in, uh, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians? He says, as a father then, you as... Believers in Christ, the bride of Christ, I've betrothed you to Christ, wanting you to be holy and pure in that relationship, you're married to Christ, you're the bride of Christ, I brought you into that relationship, and Paul tells them back in chapter 11 and verse 7, he says, I exalted you at my own expense, Paul says. So Paul loved his children in the faith in spite of their failures. How many of you as parents, when your kids fail, you say, I want nothing more to do with you? I mean, there's a parental love in the heart that is there. No matter how that son or daughter may fail or fall, you love your children in a way that you can't put into words. And so Paul loved these Corinthians in spite of their failures. He loved his children in the faith. He sacrificed for them. He devoted himself to building them up in so many different ways. And yes, like a good parent, he pointed out their faults and reprimanded them when they needed it. Uh, Indeed, if, if you're a parent, you understand Paul's analogy here very well. If you're a parent, you have a heart to do everything you possibly can for your child's well-being, do you not? Do everything you can, for example, to protect them. Do everything you can to provide for them. And as Paul says in this text, whatever resources you're able to save and when you pass from this life to be able to hand on to them, that's what parents do. I think about for myself, I have three children the Lord's blessed me with. All of them married. All of them have children of their own now. But my loving concern for them remains, I was going to say as strong as it ever was, probably stronger, especially in these days. I think about them raising my little grandkids, the kind of world we live in. My, my love and concern for them is even stronger than it was when they were in third grade or fourth grade. And I earnestly desire the best for them. I still do what I can to help and encourage them in many ways that I can. And so what Paul is saying here to these Corinthians, so you're my children in the faith. What should be the response of children to parents like that? What should be the response? Well, to repay that parent with love and honor. What does the fourth commandment say? Honor your father and your mother is the way that it begins. And so parents are to provide for their children, and children, while they are yet children, are not expected to provide for their parents. So there is a sacrifice. You think those of you that are younger parents, I mean, you sacrifice sleep at night when the little one's crying all night long. There's stuff you can't do because you've got a little one in the house. You think of all the things that you've done over the years as parents. Why? Because you have that burning love for them. You're willing to sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice if all is well with them. That's the kind of love Paul's talking about, that we as servants of Jesus Christ are called to have for those that we serve. And so you notice in verse 13, back up there for a moment, where where Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, "Um, I haven't been a burden to you. And then he sarcastically asks them forgiveness. He says, forgive me this wrong. Forgive me for trying to do good for you at every turn, Paul says. Forgive me for working to support myself so you didn't have to take my salary out of the church budget. Forgive me for sacrificing on your behalf. Forgive me for not wanting your stuff. You notice this in verse 14. I seek not what is yours, but you. I want a relationship with you. I'm not interested in your money. I'm not interested in your stuff. Forgive me for that kind of attitude. Forgive me for desiring what is good for your souls, both in this life and the next. Forgive me this wrong, Paul says sarcastically. And then here is heart down in verse 15. He says, if I love you more, am I loved less? Sadly, that was true for some of them. Can you sense Paul's disappointment? Their failure to reciprocate his love? Them. And Paul says, it seems like the warmer my love is for you, the cooler your love is in return, says the apostle. And so the orientation of a servant is self giving love. A love, by the way, notice verse 15, that's always costly. What does verse 15 say? Paul says, I will most gladly, most gladly spend and be spent for your souls real love always has a cost there's no genuine love without a cost sometimes when it comes to serving the Lord people say well it's going to cost me something I I don't want to sacrifice that time I have other things that I got to be involved in there's a cost to it and I don't want to pay it Paul says here in this text, one who has a heart for serving the Lord, a true servant of Jesus Christ, will say, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your well-being, for your souls. To have that kind of spirit. For those of you that come on a Wednesday night with Awana to say, I most gladly will spend a Wednesday night, even if it wears me out, to be spent for these precious children who come in the door. For those of you who work with young people, and I think of Mark and those that, that help him to say, okay, these young people come in the door. Whatever it takes on a Wednesday night to reach kids in junior high and high school for Christ, whatever it costs me, I'm going to do it because it's worth it for the sake of Jesus Christ. There's always a cost in genuine love. Make no mistake about it. What does Paul say back in chapter 8 of uh, this book, book of 2 Corinthians? It reflects the heart of the Lord Jesus, that kind of spirit. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. I guess that's spending and being spent, isn't it? For your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, The opening verses, he says, looking unto Jesus, he says to his readers, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, here's the next phrase, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There was a love which surmounted the pain and suffering of the cross so that that blood of Christ shed for your salvation and my salvation. That's the kind of love Paul's talking about in this passage, a sacrificial love. And so Paul gives freely. Paul gives joyfully to those to whom he's ministering. And what was the price that he paid? Just think about what this verse might mean, where he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So what did it cost him? Well, we've seen back earlier in the book some of the cost. Impoverishment, poor health very likely lingering injuries from the severe beatings to the point of death that he experienced, whatever those permanent injuries might have been, premature old age, a martyr's death in the end. There was a cost to what the Apostle Paul did, but because he reached Gentiles, we're sitting here today. You think about what Paul sacrificed so we Gentiles could be reached with the gospel. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Looking unto Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, you flip the coin over, this coin of sacrificial love, and what you discover in verses 16 through 18, if you have the right kind of love, you don't twist the relationship so you get some advantage out of it. You don't enter into a, a, quote, loving relationship for what you can acquire, what you can gain. And you notice Paul comes back to this matter of salary. It must have been a huge deal because he mentions it in 1 Corinthians. We've already seen it in 2 Corinthians. This really was a burr under the saddle of some there in the church in Corinth that Paul didn't take a salary from them. And so what what does Paul write in verse 16? So Paul says, I did not burden you You all understand that. But what was the charge? The charge was, you're really crafty, Paul, verse 16, and you get the better of us by deceit. So what is the charge? The charge is, you're not taking a salary. Oh, you appear to be so sacrificial, so spiritual, so wonderful. And so you're collecting money for the poor in Judea and Jerusalem. That's what you told us and you're going around to all the Gentile churches and you're collecting funds, guess what? Not all of it's going to make it to Jerusalem. We're on to you, Paul. Because what's going to happen is most of it will, some of it will. Yeah, money will get there. But what you're going to do, Paul, is line your own pockets with the funds... And you'll be no poorer in the end. So you can still say, oh, I'm not taking a salary. I'm so spiritual. Look at how much I love the Lord. Look at how much I sacrifice. And you got plenty of money and nobody's the wiser. That's what Paul is addressing here. And what's Paul's response? Very interesting. He says, look at the character of the two individuals that I sent to actually gather the funds. So Paul had talked about this among the churches. But Paul didn't directly gather the funds and put them, you know, in his pocket and trust me, I'll get them there. Paul had those he commissioned to go to the churches and collect the funds. And you notice here in this text, one of them is Titus, you notice that in verse 18, and another brother who is unnamed in the text. And so Paul says, look at the character of the two individuals I sent to you. What does it say to you about the kind of person I am? And what he says to the Corinthians is, did Titus and his traveling partner defraud you in any way? Yes or no? Well, no, he didn't. Did Titus and his friend do anything unethical in their conduct? Yes or no? Well, no, they didn't. Was there any breath of scandal regarding either one of them? Yes or no? Well, no, there's no scandal. Were their intentions honorable and above board in every way? Yes or no? Well, yes, they were. They were honorable in every way. And so Paul says, all right, so you know the men that I sent to you, men of character, of integrity, inwardly and outwardly in every possible way. You can evaluate my character by the character of those whom I sent to collect the funds from you, the delegates I sent your way. And so a relationship, the orientation of a servant is one of love, But you never leverage it for your own advantage. You don't ever twist it so you can gain something from it. It is a genuine self-sacrificing giving. And so then, for you and me, the question then, as servants of Christ, is ministry about me or is it about others when it comes to whatever it is that you and I do? Is it about me? Is it about others? Is my ministry sacrificial? That's a good question to ask. Am I involved in ministry for what I can get out of it? However you want to take that phrase. Am I involved in ministry for what I can get out of it, or is there a God-given joy in giving and investing myself in others? The orientation of a servant, self-sacrificing love. Number three, verse 19, the accountability of a servant. And I want you to notice verse 19 begins with what seems to be a super obvious question. How does Paul begin? He says to the Corinthians, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It's like, well, yeah, that's kind of like the whole book. That's like the whole letter. Defending your apostleship. Exactly. You can't miss it. It's pretty obvious. Paul says, if that's what you conclude, you've missed the point of my letter then. I'm not really, that's not the bottom line. I'm not really defending myself. What does he say in verse 19? I've written this letter. Notice for your upbuilding. Beloved. He still calls them his beloved, doesn't he? Paul says, I'm not on trial before you. I don't have to give my defense before you. Um, You're not the judge and jury. I'm not in the courtroom where you're determining my fate, if you will. I'm not ultimately answerable, Paul says to you. Now, Paul has been defending himself in a number of ways. I mean, you can see that throughout the text. I've highlighted that. But Paul says that's not the ultimate reason. In my self-defense, if you will, I'm trying to build you up. I need to get you back on track theologically. So that's why I've been writing what I've been writing. I need to get you back to the gospel. I need to get you back to what it means to live a Christian life. That's what I've been doing. I want to see you transformed. I want to see repentance and reconciliation. That's why I've been writing these things. No, it's not about me. It's not some sort of self-defense. This letter is for your edification. It is not for my self-justification. That's not my central aim. And then you notice something else in verse 19. Paul says, I'm on trial, if you want to think of it that way. But who am I on trial before? It's the Lord. Notice verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We say, well, yeah, that's what you've been doing. No, Paul says, it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking. In Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved, he says. We've been speaking in Christ. Paul in his first letter, chapter 4 in verse 33, uh, he says to the Corinthians, the Lord is the one who judges me. I'm not judged by you, Paul says, or by anybody else. And so Paul says, this letter I'm writing to you is actually an open letter. It's a letter I write in the sight of God, the apostle says. Christ is the one who evaluates me. He called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's what I'm answerable for. I'm not answerable to you, so my letter is, I'm not really defending myself, but I am writing to build you up in your walk with the Lord. So what's the application then for you and me? To realize that everything we do is in the sight of God. We're not answerable to whoever heads up whatever ministry that we're part of. We're not ultimately answerable to that person. We're answerable to the Lord, and to do God's will from the heart, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, not being people pleasers, but seeking to please the Lord, and to realize that whatever it is that we do in service, it's ultimately rendering service to God and not to others, and in the end, it's the Lord who does the evaluation. The Lord is the one who holds us accountable, And one day when we stand before him to have the joy of hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So there is an accountability, and to live as Paul did, recognizing our accountability is ultimately to the Lord and the Lord alone. And then notice the text ends this way, last two verses of the chapter, verses 20 and 21, the character of a servant. And what do these verses teach us about what the character of a servant should be like? You notice Paul here speaks about moral uprightness and holiness. And you notice Paul's concern is that when he arrives in Corinth for his third visit, that he might, he hopes he doesn't, but he might discover those in the congregation whose lives are not as they should be. Instead, you notice in verse 20, Lives in the congregation. Notice this whole list Paul has here. Lives marked by quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, deceit, and disorder. And then add to that, Paul says in verse 21. Those of you who sinned earlier, he's talking about 1 Corinthians when he had to reprimand some for various sexual sins. I'm afraid that when I come now, after writing two letters, there'll be some of you who will not have repented of any of it, of your impurity, your sexual immorality, and your sensuality. And so it's obvious as this text closes that Paul is deeply concerned about those who name the name of Christ, but whose lives look no different than the lives of the folks in the world around. And Paul says, if those attitudes, this list in verse 20, uh, the immorality he points to in verse 21, if these practices are still present when I come, what does he say? My God may humble me before you, and I'll be brought to the place of sorrow and tears. My God may humble me. What's Paul saying? God called me to establish this church, is what Paul says. I came as a missionary appointed by the Lord, I preached the gospel, ministered to many of you, led you to faith in Christ, bringing you to the place of spiritual maturity while I was there, teaching you the things of the Lord, and then I left because God called me on to further places of church planting. And Paul says, so when I come again, if I have to boldly act against certain ones in the church... If I have to punish various unrepentant members of the community using my apostolic authority, that won't be some kind of victory, Paul says. That will actually be a defeat. It will be a humiliation. It will be a sorrow because I founded this church. I put you on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. All seemed to be well. Now it's going the other direction. That'll be great sorrow and humiliation for me. Did I do my job? if things aren't going as they should. And so Paul, as he will write in the 13th chapter, says to the Corinthians, I urge you before I get off the boat in the harbor that you deal with these issues in your lives, in the congregation before I come. And so, in closing, so what's the challenge for you and me with this last one, this last point? It's to honestly ask several questions. So what does my life look like? Just think about it for yourself. Is my life marked by shallowness? Is it marked by spiritual indifference? Is it marked by some of the sins Paul lists in these closing verses? And if the answer to those kinds of questions is yes, then how can ministry for Christ move forward in in power and in effectiveness? So in in other words, what, what I'm getting at is if the gospel means so little to those in the church... If it means so little to you, if the gospel changes so little in a person's life, in your life, why should anybody in the Botanoke community have any interest in Grace Church at all? If our lives are no different than their lives are. Why will they have any interest in the church or the gospel or the things of Christ or the kingdom of heaven? Your life is the same as mine. You just tack religion onto to which takes up a whole bunch of time and doesn't mean anything. How important it is as servants of Jesus Christ that our character be marked by holiness and righteousness in all that we do. Because if people know you are part of this congregation, whether you're a member or not, And then they see your life not matching up what they understand, even in their limited understanding that Christians should be like, what are they gonna conclude? The Christian faith is a hoax. It doesn't mean anything. It's just empty words. It's meaningless religion. If we are Christians and our lives are new by the grace of God, it should be reflected then in our actions, in our attitudes. People should be able to see a difference. Not that we're weird, not that we do strange things. There are plenty of Christians who do that kind of stuff and discredit the cause of Christ. But I mean living out your faith in honest and straightforward ways and speaking of Christ as you have the opportunity to do so. So as I said at the beginning of the message, you and I are called to serve the Lord with the gifts and opportunities He's given to us. And that being so, this text challenges us with the question I laid out at the very beginning, am I then helping or hindering the cause of Christ? And so in light of the text, what is your answer personally to that question? Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we thank you that as you've saved us, there is glory to come, but you have very deliberately left us here in this world so that our lives might shine brightly for you. We might be a witness. And yes, Lord, through all the things we experience in life, the trials and tribulations, yes, all of those things. You shape us, you refine our character, you challenge our outlook on things. All those great things that you do in our lives as we live day by day in this world, you begin to shape us into the persons we will perfectly be one day in glory. And so, Lord, as uh, servants, as we have opportunity, as the days perhaps are short, we see the things happening in our world. We see the things happening in the Middle East, in Israel, and knowing scriptures, we begin to ask, so are we getting close to the end times? What is going to unfold in the days to come? What will all of this lead to? Well, Lord, in the meantime, for us to be faithful servants of yours, to with joy proclaim the hope that is for every person found in the gospel. And so, Lord, the results are not up to us, they're up to you. You've called us to be faithful and to spread the word. And so, Lord, may we be about, uh, as the scripture says, the master's business, and give us grace and strength in all things that we might serve you, for Christ's sake. Amen.